0: good morning good morning how y'all doing today hey Amen. good man I'm surprised that the young people got some sleep last night so uh or maybe y'all just on Starbucks this morning I don't know but either way uh I'm glad to be here with y'all it's a privilege and a joy to be here uh, I, I get greetings uh from our whole family back at Reach Fellowship thank you for your continued support through not just financial giving but prayers and uh just allowing me to be brought back here I truly consider Tri-Cities uh Baptist family and uh It's always a blessing. Uh, My wife always says, yes, please go back. Uh, Not that she wants me away from the house, but she knows that uh, I will receive love and care and have meaningful conversations every time I'm here. So I just want to extend my gratitude to you all for that. Uh, The best way that I think I can express gratitude is just by giving you the word of truth this morning from the word of God. And so with that, I would like to invite you to either turn with me, if you have a physical Bible, or type with me, if you have an electronic Bible, uh, to Ephesians chapter five, verses 18-18 all the way through chapter six, verse four. Today, we're gonna be talking about gospel-centered families. I think living on Jesus's mission is inclusive of the family dynamics that we have in our home. Today, we're gonna walk through passages of scripture that that have some weighty concepts, and it's also tension-filled because of various interpretations of this passage. And what I want you to be comforted with is the truth about the gospel and how it speaks to every nuance of our life. God is not absent minded when it comes to the meticulous details that each and every one of our life stories includes. That he speaks the gospel to all of the situations that we have lived through. Much of what we'll talk about today is you'll see that it roots back to even our family of origin. Meaning the space that we were raised in. And how even as adults, whether we've been removed from the home that we were raised in by decades or maybe by a few months. That some of the stakeholders who are the people that raised us, their opinions, their perspectives, their rhythms drove deeply into our hearts and our mindset that some things are good and some things are challenging and some things are just ungodly. And we bring all of these things into the various relationships that we have. And the good news about the gospel is that it speaks to all of that. And so the beauty of this passage, I think, is uh, gonna be summed up in a main point that I will give us after we pray. So let's bow our heads and our hearts and let's pray, and then we will dive into the word of God. Father, what an appreciation we have just to be able to gather today. I'm grateful that the saints have made the conscious decision to come into your house and to give you praise and glory. Father, even as we gather in this space today, Lord God, we remember the global church. We recognize that in the North Sudan that there are brothers and sisters that don't have a space that they can meet in, that they have to meet privately, Lord God. The reality of even saints throughout Latin America that don't have the means to go to a building, Father, they have to scram, Lord God, to scramble and find a space just to gather to break bread and fellowship and hear the word of God together. In the space that we're in, we're grateful, Lord God, that we have each other. And we're grateful that we make the conscious decision to lean into community formation by the Holy Spirit here in the local church. So I pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us and that, Holy Spirit, you would allow us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The main point that I think of this text about being a gospel-centered family is this. Gospel-centered families strive daily to be spirit-filled supportive, and sensitive to one another. Let me say that again. Gospel-centered families strive daily to be spirit-filled, supportive, and sensitive to one another. I'm a Baptist preacher, so you see the alliteration in the three points. So we're going to walk right through this text with three different aspects to be highlighted. Number one, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Well, in verses 18 through 20, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea about being spirit-filled is not something that is humanistic. It's actually from God, and it's something that every Christian should be experiencing on a regular basis. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he actually gives us a contrast That as human beings, we actually do have the capability and the probability of becoming under the influence of another substance. The reality of being under the influence or the control of another substance means that it takes over the things that we think, the things that we say, and the actions that we perform. Sometimes it is alcohol. Sometimes it is drugs. Sometimes it's bitterness or anger or rage. And what Paul is saying is do not allow anything... Outside of God the Holy Spirit to continuously influence and control what you think, the words you say, and the actions that you perform. Paul's writing this as a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not, hey, Christian, whenever you feel like it, be spirit-filled. But rather, we are commanded to continuously pursue a filling of the Holy Spirit. It's written in a way where we have to keep on, keep on passively receiving the Holy Spirit. We don't fill ourselves up with the Holy Spirit. He is the one that we need to receive from as he fills us up. I will turn 40, good Lord willing, this July, but I'm still young enough, yet old enough to remember, based on my dad, who was born in 1944, you can do the math, and basically what he told me is that every time I would talk about a gas station, he would correct me and say, no, those are called filling stations. And I was like, well, what you, what's the difference? He's like, well, a filling station is what we called them growing up, because when you would pull up to the pump, there were two different lanes that you could actually choose from. You could go to full service or self-service. And it was a filling station where you would fill up your car. And I remember when I was young that you could pull up, and if you went to the full service side, there would be someone who was hired by that gas station, filling station, to come out to your car. They would do the work of filling your car up with fuel. They would wipe down your window. They would check the air pressure, put air in your tires, check the oil, and you would give them a tip. So that was a filling station. You would stay in your car, and they would do all these things to you, almost like a drive-through with the gas station that merged together. Now we have electric cars and you go to the mall and McDonald's and you just plug it in and it charges it for you. But the reality is this idea of something that is outside of your car that is filling it with what is necessary for your car to keep on going. This is the idea Paul is telling us. You don't fill yourself up. But rather, it's not something, it's someone, God, the Holy Spirit, that you got to recognize I'm on fumes. I am not filled up. My attitude is not God-like right now. There's tension in my marriage or me and my children, we got beef with each other right now. So Holy Spirit, I need to pull over, tell the busyness of the culture, you do not run my life, and I need to just sit and receive from the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to seek to continuously be filled. So the question is just like when we have a car and it tells us that gas gauge, whether you're on full, half or empty, I think that there's a gauge in this text that tells us, how can I measure to see how spirit-filled I am right now? Am I filled, or am I running on fumes? Or am I somewhere in between? And I think the three elements of that gas gauge is basically looking at how the spirit fills us and the level of filling we're at based on joy, thankfulness, and submission. So Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first gauge that we have to look at as far as us being spirit-filled is, what level of joy do I have? And how is it being expressed to those in the body of Christ? See, we can think that being spirit-filled is self-focused, but rather, we're filled up so that we can engage with others in our homes, but also in our local church. Paul says, addressing one another. See, being spirit-filled should not just lead to us hoarding all the spirit-filling for ourselves, but rather we give it out as we speak to one another. We express joy when we quote the Psalms, which is the biblical writings of poetry, the music or not. We express joy when we communicate the reality of hymns, just like what we uh, Saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's about speaking these truths and rhythms that would turn our affections, turn our attention away from ourselves, away from the idols of the world, and back rightly on to Jesus Christ but also spiritual songs, which are lyrics, again, that infuse our hearts with joy as we look at the goodness and the greatness of our God. See, it is possible to have joy that is not based upon circumstances, and the reality of joy is an evidence of us being spirit-filled if we are not filled with joy. And listen, this is not a superficial, overly romantic that you're a glutton for punishment and you keep a smile on your face. Joy is saying, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of confusion, tension, hurt, and woundedness, that ultimately I can still say, man, God is still good. His value has not devalued because I'm suffering, but rather my suffering is leading me to go deeper into the presence of God, to trust his word all the more, to not abandon the hope of the gospel because I know that my pain has a purpose when I surrender it to the cross of Christ. So this is not a superficial, overly romantic, stuff your and suppress your emotions. Rather, it is, no, bring the pain, bring the lamenting, bring the frustration, bring the sinfulness, even that we have in those moments of pressure, and bring it to God and let him replenish you with greater levels of joy. That will lead to thankfulness, which is the second gauge. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a Trinitarian involvement In the reality of being Spirit-filled, we're filled with the Spirit. God the Father is the one we're looking to, but we're only in a right relationship with Him because of our embracing of Christ as our Savior. So the whole Trinity is involved in our pursuit of being Spirit-filled, which means you're never alone in this process. The community of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit is genuinely there massaging you and I and leading us to go deeper into our consumption of being filled by the Holy Spirit. But this idea of giving thanks always. See, I got to go back to my family of origin because my mother would always tell me that if I'm complaining, I'm sinning. And I didn't know how to discern the difference between complaining and actually speaking truth in the moment of a genuine evaluation or assessment of something. So let me just give you a real example. Whenever we go to a restaurant and they get my order wrong or they forgot to give me something that I asked for, I struggle because I think it's an issue of morality if I tell them this is not what I ordered. Like, I struggle with even saying, like, you know what, I can't even tell you that you got the order wrong because I feel like I'm going to embarrass you or I feel like I'm just being discontent. If God is sovereign, then they wanted me to have chicken instead of the steak that I ordered. So, God, I just got to suck it up and eat the chicken, right? So, I go into this mental browbeating of myself. Because then I say, well, you know, Christians in Africa, they ain't even got chicken right now. Christians in Latin America can't even go to a restaurant right now. So I start beating myself up with my own theological framework in that moment. And my wife knows what's going on. And I'm sitting there like, should I eat? Should I not? She's like, excuse me, y'all got it wrong. <laughs> she doesn't do it like with a brashness. But she's saying, Damon, there's nothing wrong with speaking the truth. It's truthful that this is not what you ordered, Damon. That's not wrong. I'm like, yeah, but it's complaining. No, it's not. It's saying, this is what I asked for. It's not what I received. May I please have what I asked for? See, that goes back to the way that I was raised. The the stakeholders of my heart taught me these things. And when I got into marriage, we clashed a lot. Because I was like, no, no, it's this way or no way. And my wife was like, bro, are you tripping? It is not just that way. So my wife has to love me into the place of maturity. She was more mature and free in that area than I was. I put these self-restrictions on myself. Even to the point that a few months ago, we were with my mom and dad. And I literally asked them that question. I said, hey, when you guys get your order wrong, or let's say your french fries are cold, do you tell the people? And both my parents said, oh, absolutely not. But they'll complain about it like three months later, Right. Which is the rhythm that, and so that's where my wife said, no, no, there's a difference between complaining and speaking a truthful assessment. Complaining is when you are discontent, when you get what you asked for and it's still not good enough. And I'm like, oh. So so being thankful actually gives room to give a truthful evaluation and an honest assessment in the moment. That's not complaining. If you want to know what complaining is, read the story of the Exodus. And look at how the Israelites constantly complained when God provided food out of nowhere. We're hungry. He gives them manna. It falls from the sky. They have no idea what it means. The Hebrew word manna means what is it? They were eating what is it for 40 years. And they grew discontent. So he gave them quail. They got discontent. Weed water. God gave them water. I don't like the taste of this water. It's not filtered. Right? So like all these problems and it got to the point that Moses struck a rock out of anger because he got tired of their complaining. So brothers and sisters, listen. Thankfulness does not mean withholding truth when it's an honest evaluation. You can speak it in gentleness and truthfulness. This is crucial in our relationships, not just as husband and wives, not just as parents, as children, but as brothers and sisters in the community of fellowship of the local church as well. Complaining is when things are as they should be, and you say, that doesn't meet my expectations, and you keep on driving that point to the point that it leads people to anger and frustration. See, the other thing we have to recognize is the third aspect of gauging our level of spirit field in addition to joy and thankfulness is submission, our level of submission. I know in our society, submission is a cuss word, but I want to be truthful and honest and tender. As I step into the pulpit today, I recognize that the passages we're about to walk through with marriage but also parenting, there's a lot of baggage. There's a lot of misappropriation and mishandling of this text. Often this text has been communicated with a a, a heart of of bigotry, where there would be an intolerance to those that disagree with the interpretation of the individual when the interpretation was not in step with what Paul was communicating. Secondly, even misogyny, which basically is a dislike and a hatred towards women. And lastly, it's often been used in in a vantage point of sexism, where stereotyping and discriminating and outright being prejudiced against women simply because they're women. And these verses have been used as an extra biblical interpretational framework to put it on women specifically, without any nuance, without any consideration of mutual submission. But I also want to speak to the tension of those that are unmarried in the space today as well, because God's not forgotten about you. And you are not excluded from the family dialogue of this text either. And when I say unmarried, that is inclusive of those who were divorced, those who were single, or those who were widowed. You're not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. The reality of what we recognize in this is that the identity of every Jesus follower is shaped by our alignment of a right relationship with Jesus, not our marital status. So if you're in this place and you're on your second or third or multiple marriage, listen, this is not a space to be shamed, guilted. The reality is God has had his fingerprints on every life situation that you have been involved in. God is in the business of redeeming and restoring, and God does not have a tiered class when it comes to his children. The reality of this passage is liberating truths to help us recognize that in the moments of the the challenge of the nuance that we have with our stories, God still desires us to be spirit-filled and supportive while walking in sensitivity to one another. Those who are married are not superior to those who are unmarried and vice versa. The entirety of Scripture is written corporately to all of God's people. Being married is not a prerequisite to being a child of the king. Even if you remain unmarried, again, divorced, singled, or widowed for your entire life, that does not mean that you were second class in the kingdom. That does not mean that you are inferior in God's family, or that does not mean that you should be pushed to the margins of church life. You need to be included in the center of the reality of the Spirit's work. Every Jesus follower, every single one of us, has been called to cultivate a heart of submission to Jesus first And then secondly, to the priority of the relationships that we'll talk about. Every Jesus follower in the local church participates in creating a culture of support. For the unmarried, your feedback is so necessary to those of us who are married. Because you strive us to be challenged to live more faithfully, both inside and outside of our homes. For the married, our invitation to the unmarried to be a part of our lives will help us recognize our blind spots. But at the same time, their evaluation that is truthful will help us see how Jesus has been maturing us throughout the process of marriage. So with all of that, now we go into the second point, what it looks like to be supportive. Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's hearers would have understood the word submitting as a call for every follower of Christ to continuously and voluntarily consider harmony and unity in an orderly fashion. The word was used in a military context. When the mission was given, each person would know their rank, they would know their responsibility, and how they contribute to the work that they were to carry out so that the overall mission together would be accomplished. Every person in the body of Christ has both importance and value, every single one of us. So this call for mutual submission to one another is God's heart regarding submission being a two-way street, not a one-way street. In addition to this, believers are called to put the needs of others above our own needs. Now, I know the cynical part of me says, well, if I'm always considering everybody else besides me, then when are my needs going to be met? And as selfish as that sounds, that's my mindset. But then I lean into this idea of mutual submission because if I'm actually legitimately seeking to meet the needs of others while I'm living in community, guess what they're doing for me? Seeking to meet my needs as I'm seeking to meet their needs. So there's this idea of reciprocal growth, maturity, and deep, meaningful relationships that are being formed in the togetherness of body life that starts in the home and then collectively only amplifies when we gather in our local church. Notice. That while being inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul calls every believer to submit to one another. Our motivation to submit to one another in the body of Christ is doing so out of a reverence for Christ himself. This means that we have a respect for who Jesus is and his lordship over our lives. But also a respect for how he modeled faithful submission, even himself, to the will of the Father. See, he added to his full deity full humanity. In addition to this, he lived in perfect obedience to the the Father's laws that we see in the Old Covenant. He actually volunteered and submitted himself to death on a cross, being shamed as a criminal. And he received the punishment for our sins, he who is innocent, on our behalf, so that he could shed his pure blood, which was the only currency that God the Father accepts for our sin debt. Jesus volunteered to do that. He didn't just die for my sins per se, he died my death. That's what the gospel proclaims. And he did it voluntarily. He actually has joy that was set before him, as the author of Hebrews tells us. That he was perfectly spirit-filled, which helps me in my humanity. It should help you in your humanity realize you're not fully God. Neither am I. We're not partially God. We are fully human beings, which means we are imperfect. We are incapable of living the standard of perfection. But the gospel tells us that when we embrace Christ as Savior by faith, his perfection covers us. So when the Father looks at us and all of our brokenness, all of our sinfulness, even the consequences for the sins that we've been forgiven, the righteousness of Jesus is still covering us and God the Father is pleased with us. He's not disappointed in us. Some of us need to sit in that truth, again, because going back to our upbringing, maybe you were raised by parents or step-parents or legal guardians or foster parents or in the state system, and maybe you never thought that what you did was good enough, and now you think that the sins of humans have now been given you leverage to give those sins as if God the Father acts that way, and he doesn't. Some of you need to hear that God is not mad at you. Some of you need to hear that the Father will never abuse you. Some of us need to sit in that moment of reflection and think about how our human parents, and even we who are human parents, have failed, but yet God has remained faithful. So that leveraged us to look at Jesus, to say he modeled it perfectly, which gives room for my imperfections. I'm not always going to get it right. So that God would be pleased with us. This idea of being spirit-filled and mutually submitting to one another in step, with how Christ models it, now gives us the framework to say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as even Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives submit in everything to their husbands. First, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that the wife is on the same status with the child. It does not mean that. Secondly, it does not mean that a wife is supposed to be a doormat for husband to walk all over her Thirdly, this does not mean that a woman loses her dignity, her individuality, and her identity when she becomes married This passage is not saying that a wife is inferior to her husband rather the heart of mutual submission gives us the freedom to consider the nuances Number one, that Paul is not saying all women in all places are always subject to men everywhere. Rather, the idea of submission in the relationship is framed as the wife to her husband. You know, just to kind of flesh this out a little bit, uh, I'm a professor at Cal Baptist University. And in my interview for the position, I was asked by the woman, the scholar, who would actually be my immediate superior, do I have a problem with having a woman as my superior? And I told her, absolutely not. I'm like, your credentials speak for themselves. God has gifted you. You're more seasoned in the space of teaching in the profession of pedagogy than I am. I want to learn from you. I want to glean from you. I'm not intimidated by that at all. The reality is, is that I recognize the freedom of what this looks like is that this is not speaking that women should never have supervisor positions. It's not speaking to even the nuances of government leadership or parachurch church leadership. It's specifically speaking to the role of marriage. Paul deals with the role of local church leadership in 1 Timothy and Titus, and when we talk about male elder-led plurality, like that's what he's talking about in that space. In the space of the home, there's mutual submission and there's a freedom there. But often this has been communicated that women have to be subservient nonstop all the time, 24 hours a day, no matter what space they enter into. That's not what this text is saying. J.H. Yoder said, equality of worth is not identity of role, which means the worth and value of a wife is not lost when she becomes married or while she is married. And it should not be ignored. Rather, she should be empowered to fulfill the role and the family rhythm that God has provided her with. At the same time, for the unmarried sisters, your value is not determined based on whether you're married or not. It's not discounted or cheapened if you're not married. See, even in my life and in our marriage, God has given my wife, Alicia, giftings and skill sets that he just did not give to me. And it's not in the trivial things of life. It's like the reality of finances and stewardship and even some of the life rhythms of the home. See, I'm a visionary, so all I see is A and Z. Alicia is a planner and an organizer. She sees everything from B, C, D all the way to Y. And that's led to interesting conversations because I've said, hey, we're going to go here. She's like, stop. Do you have a plan? Do you know what's going on? Do you know what we have? Do you know the nuances of this? What about this? What about that? I said, stop. You're living in your flesh. Live by faith. And she's like, no, that's foolishness, not faith. God has gifted her. It's not intimidating, and I'm not less of a biblical husband. if Felicia is the one who, who understands the finances, and she manages the finances. She's gifted in that area. My philosophy of economics is work hard, play hard, spend what I want. That doesn't work, bro. <laughs> It doesn't work. And my wife says, no, save, spend sparingly, be wise, and set aside. And I'm like, see, that's boring. There's no excitement in that. And she's like, it's not about being excited. It's about being good stewards. It's about being generous. That when people say we have need, well, what good is it for you to blow X amount of dollars on Dodgers tickets when somebody who's living in our community doesn't even have food for the table? And it's beyond their control. It's not because they're lazy. It's because circumstances have hit, and there's no employment there. Like, we have to think about others, not just our entertainment. See, that's what I'm saying. There's mutual submission. It's not that she's running the house. It's that God has given her the space and giftedness to lead in certain areas, and, but it's not as if he has not given me gifts. I lead in the areas that I'm strong in, but we come together and we communicate, we pray, and we dialogue, and then we think through what it looks like to decide. Thomas Constable said the word support is a good synonym for the biblical concept of submit. A wife submits to her husband when she voluntarily organizes herself so she can complete her husband. A good example of this is illustrated by her cooperating with him as they run a three-legged race. If you've ever seen a three-legged race, uh, you can see that they're attached by one, two legs together, and they have to find a rhythm of moving forward in order to win the race, or maybe just finish the race, not just win the race. It's sometimes when someone's running first or they're out of step and out of sync, then They fall. And it's not easy to get up when two of you are falling on the ground and you start getting frustrated. No, you speed up, right? Like like that's the picture of marriage in many of our contexts. We're trying to run at two different paces, sometimes in two different directions. There's no communication. We don't know where we're going. We're not thinking about God. We're only thinking about ourselves, let alone our spouses or our children. What examples are we setting for them? How to perpetually fall and stay on the ground, frustrated, fighting, and say, you know what, we're done. I can't do this anymore. Not even seeking to be spirit-filled, be supportive, let alone sensitive. I would add the mutual submission speaks to a husband equally looking to support his wife. So the idea of completion could be embodied. A family unit, them living on the mission of God and calling them to work the mission and to see it accomplished. It's about togetherness. It's about oneness. It takes both sensitivity and support. So for husbands, we have a taller glass (laughs) to drink from. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives even as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands are to love our wives unconditionally. The phrasing that Paul is using about love is showing Christ's love for his bride. That should be our desire. Jesus desires God's best for us. Husbands, we should desire God's best for our wives. Even to those who were unmarried, I remember thinking through, how do I know that Alicia is the one was a question I frequently got asked. And I remember coming to the realization through much prayer and counsel from local church leadership and even my own parents. The reality was is that I realized that if I was not God's best for her, then I was willing to walk away from the relationship. Not so that I could uh, make myself to be holier than thou or more spiritually mature because it was a very painful reality. But I said, so that I would no longer be a distraction from God's best for her, because God, I am not so prideful and arrogant stuck on myself to think that I'm God's best for Alicia. If I'm not your best for her, then I don't want to distract her from who you have for her, and vice versa. I don't want to try to force her into a space where she's not your best for me. And the reality of that led me to the space where I said, Alicia, do you feel that I'm God's best for you? And we had that conversation. See, it's not about just, oh, romantic feelings. That stuff dies out within 18 months. I'm just being honest with y'all. But it's the reality of, man, do you spur me on to love Jesus more? Do you confess your shortcomings and give me space to show you grace? Will you be patient with me? See, this is everything Jesus does. If I'm being honest with you, Jesus gives the church love when the church doesn't deserve to be loved. In the same way, husbands and wives mutually should give love and grace, even when we feel that the spouse does not deserve love and grace. That's commitment. That's marriage. That's mutual submission. That's being supportive. The example set by Jesus is love. It's one that we should seek to strive to model, but we're never gonna do it perfectly. But Jesus knows his bride, and he knows how to place the needs for his bride above his own. That's what the cross demonstrated. The cross is God's demonstration of I love you, not just a verbal declaration. Likewise, husbands, we have to know our wives, specifically answering the question deep in her soul, do you love me? Gary Chapman has the five love languages. It's an amazing text. Me and Alicia go back and reference it frequently because I recognize that in my life, I'm very simple. Not every man is the same. So I'm speaking in a very general term. But the reality is, early on in our marriage, physical touch was the only way that I heard I love you. That's the only way, intimacy, physically. That's the only way that I I understood love. For my wife, she spoke all five languages every other five minutes. So it was so hard to figure out how do I tell her I love her when I'm only trying to speak physical touch to her and she's like, no. But five years into our marriage, she began to tell me that she's a sexual abuse survivor. I didn't understand that. So she didn't even know how to process that trauma, let alone see killing, let alone in her mind, she's still that eight-year-old girl that thinks any man that touches me or anyone that touches me, it's wrong, it's dirty, it's not what God wanted. And here I am, frustrated, thinking my wife's not attracted to me. She's cheating on me. And I'm thinking all the tensive thoughts in these moments, and it's all because we lack communication because she was not feeling safe and vulnerable with me because I kept trying to say I love you in a language that she didn't speak. So I had to learn, how do you receive love, Alicia? I actually saw a meme the other day that cracked me up. It's this book with the top part here and the bottom part here with at least 6,000 pages in between. And it says, How to Understand a Woman, Volume 1. And I was like, yeah, that's true. Because the reality of knowing my wife is a privilege. It's a privilege to know how I can tell her I love her in a way that she understands. In the same way wives should be pursuing how do I tell my husband I love him in the heart language that he hears and receives. In addition to this, that leads to oneness. Oneness in marriage takes place when communication takes place. It's been said on average that the average American couple spends 37 minutes a week in meaningful conversation. That's just a little bit more than five minutes a day. No relationship can be healthy with only five minutes of communication a day. So loving our wives, men, includes hearing their hearts, but also posturing our hearts so that we can communicate and then take both of our hearts together to the word of God. Reading the Psalms together, reading the scriptures together, hearing God's word speak to the nuances of our hearts. The motivation is so that when Jesus returns, we would present our wives as holy and without blemish to our Lord. Marriage is an illustration of the gospel. That's what Paul's telling us. Marriage is about prioritizing our spouse as primary versus every other human relationship, even our relationship to our children. But he starts by reminding us that when we get married, we leave the structure of our family of origin so that we can cleave together with our spouse and develop a new rhythm of oneness together. But we have to learn to prioritize even our spouse above our own children. That's tough for some of us to grapple with. Because the relationship between the husband and wife is primary and it should be placed above even the relationship between the mother and father and their children. Often couples root their identity in their children, sometimes seeking to live out their second go with childhood and adolescence through their child. Or sometimes just putting unmet expectations in their own life on their kids and now their children become their idols. And when the children grow and they go, the married couple does not know how to engage with each other. Their deficiencies in communication, their lack of prioritizing the marriage above the children now is put on full display, and they have a choice. Either we learn to rediscover how to put each other as the priority under God, or we continue idolatry by now worshiping our grandkids. It's a tough challenge, but Paul speaks to what this looks like when we prioritize spirit-filled living with a culture of support. Husbands are to lead the way in keeping God first and then our marriage and then our children. And the outflow of that will help us in our parenting. And that's our last point, how to be sensitive in our parenting. Paul says, children, obey your parents for the Lord, and the Lord for this is right. I'm gonna be honest with y'all. My mama would quote this to me all the time. And I would quote Ephesians 6, 4. Yeah, but it says, parents, don't exasperate your children, mama. So like I would come right back with her. But I didn't understand what either one of them passages meant. I just knew how to clap back and i used use the scriptures. But the reality of what Paul is saying is is that the idea is if parents are pursuing God, they would guide their children in pursuing God as well. But listen, not every single one of us grow up in a gospel-centered home. Some of us are trying to undo a legacy legacy of sinfulness and addictions and brokenness for the first time in our family history. We're trying to put this together for the first time to reestablish a new rhythm for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The reality is you're not alone in that. That's the beauty of the local church is that we get to speak into the nuances of what's going on. That's what I love about tri Cities is that you have a legitimate family rhythm of the life culture in this local body, that everyone knows their role in pursuing God together with his word being the framework for how we live our lives and what we are to believe. Children are to submit to their parents in the areas of instruction unless the parents are trying to get them into the pressures of the rhythm of the world, which leads them away from God and further into idolatry and sinfulness. The goal in mind is for the child to be led towards righteousness. And this takes place as long as the child is living under the home of the parents. When the transition to adulthood takes place, that's where we as children, who are now adults, go from the obedience to honoring aspects of our relationship with our parents. That's why Paul says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Honoring your parents means to show them respect. As an adult, there's times when me and my wife disagree with both sets of our parents. And there's moments in which we have to speak and lean in to the tensions of disagreement or even the woundedness and the hurt that our parents have caused us even in our adult years. And we love them enough to not excommunicate them from our lives, but to keep leaning into the tension of redemption and forgiveness and communication. There's even times when God has hauled us as a family, to move away from Kansas City to Atlanta, Atlanta to North Carolina, and now North Carolina to, to Los Angeles and Long Beach for the last four years, we never divorced our parents from that conversation. We always included them and say, hey, this is what we sense God is leading us to do. We would just love your insight and your counsel. Not that we obey them. If they say, no, you stay in Kansas City, we say respectfully, we love you. We're listening to your counsel, but ultimately we obey God. And the reality of our family structure is that my wife is my prioritized relationship above you and you, mom and dad. And Alicia will tell her parents, my husband is the priority of the relationship above you and you, mom and dad. We love you, we respect you, we show you honor by seeking your wisdom. This is best lived out here in the plurality of leadership that I see here. It's that the leaders don't make decisions without seeking the counsel and advice of the other leaders potentially of spouses, potentially of members, thinking, Lord, as you're leading us, you've given us discerning voices in the congregation and amongst the leadership. So as we seek to walk by faith, it's not without faithfully conversing and hearing and seeking wisdom. That's what it means to honor your parents when you grow up and you go. Paul closes. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Paul's day, it was common that fathers would be tyrants and dictators. In Latin culture, it's machismo. It's my way or no way. And the reality of that is what he's saying. That's not gospel-centered. That's the way of the world. That should not be the way of the people of God. We must not place unrealistic expectation on our children and then get upset when they don't meet those perfection standards that we ourselves can't even meet. Henderson said that here's some ways that parents become guilty of provoking their children to anger. By overprotecting them. And then when they grow and go out into the world and we have not prepared them for the cultural rhythms, why would we be upset at them that they were swept away when we didn't disciple them and prepare them for the realities of the world's rhythms? By showing favoritism from one child over the others or a group of children over one or two that you show no favoritism to, by discouraging them nonstop by failing to make allowance for the fact that they're children and they're in the process of growing up. They have a right to have their own ideas as human beings, and at the same time, they don't need to be an exact copy of the parents. In addition to that, we can neglect our kids or, by bitter words, and outright physical abuse. Paul is saying none of these things should be part of our rhythms. Rather, it's discipline and instruction. This is the framework that prevents abuse. Discipline and instruction together. Discipline says when you step out of bounds from God's ways or the house rules that have been determined, then there is consequences and there is discipline to help guide you back within the framework of Scripture and the house rules. But discipline should always be accompanied by instruction. It's explaining why, why this is the framework, why these are the house rules. And it roots back to the word of God so that they recognize that even when you grow up and go out, there are still authority structures in society that God has set up that you need to abide by the rules of society. But even in your relationship with God, there was a framework of life that leads to flourishing. And these boundaries are not to prevent you from being free, but to be free to move within the freedom of the boundaries. Because when you go outside of boundaries, that's when detrimental things happen. That's when irreversible consequences take place. And so what we have to understand is with instruction is that we have to give our children the opportunity to be human and make mistakes. We also need to not pounce on them the moment they make that mistake. Sometimes it's about having discernment. Knowing your children enough to say, you know what, speaking the truth of instruction is not best timed in this moment of their hurt and their pain their confusion or their frustration or their anger. Maybe we let the emotions calm down and then we circle back with the nugget of truth and instruction for them when they're more level-headed and when they're more in a space where they can process and conversate. As the worship team comes up, I think what God is calling us to do is adhere to his instruction for families. That the rhythms of our homes would be distinct from the rhythms of the world. That we would be seen as strangers and exiles who are a part of the kingdom of God while we live in the broken city of man. But the reality of us being a family allows us to see the gospel center our focus for the rhythms in our home. We would have mutual submission to one another. That husbands and wives would learn to be supportive of each other and their children to the point that we are inclusive of instruction from God's word to set them up to be lovers of Jesus every day of their life. Let's pray. Father, in the moment that we have in this space to communicate this passage, I'm grateful that there is a structure in this local body that is pro-family. I'm grateful that this is a space that no matter what has taken place in any of our pasts, from abuse, to brokenness, to neglect, that Lord God, you're in the business of writing our stories and redeeming the wrongs of our past. So that we, Father God, can show the scars of our lives that actually show that healing is possible. And when we show the scars, that allows us to look to the great physician, the healer, Jesus. So in the spaces that we are in, if there are those, Lord God, that don't know Christ, I pray, Father, you would draw them to Jesus. If there are men and women in this place where they are like, we are done, we are finished, we're divorcing, or man, I'm on my third marriage and I don't even want this anymore, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them tenderly and softly and woo their hearts back to the truth of this word. For the unmarried, let them know that they are not second class. And those that are struggling, Lord God, speak to them. And only the way you can. Fill us, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, we pray.